Perhaps we might just start with a verse that talks about what God is doing in us. Work that God has begun in us. Well, in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6 and 7, we have a couple of very definitive verses as to what God is trying to do in us. God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we know that God, the creator, spoke in the beginning, let there be light, and there was light. He spoke and it was done. And the God that created physical light is actually now creating a new light in the hearts of believers. And the knowledge of the glory of God has been given to us in the face of Jesus Christ. We have a human being who came into the world, someone we can relate to, but someone who showed us the knowledge of the glory of God. We also note that we have this treasure, this treasure of the knowledge of the glory of God in earthen vessels. And that's something, of course, we do relate to, isn't it? Verse 16 of that chapter, it says, though our outward man perished, the inward man is renewed day by day. And we fully understand that the outward man is perishing, especially those of us who are a little towards the age side. Uh, we can't do the things that we once might have done easily. Illness and pains come more often. But we do hope the inward man is growing in all of us and it's developing and maturing as time goes on. And this God-likeness, this inner man created in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory, is the one eternal part of our life. It's the abiding element as the physical mortal frame fades away. So let's just go back to that question. What should the mind of Jesus Christ in us actually look like? Let's just check through the scriptures to see that we are shining through that knowledge of the glory of God that has been revealed to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there is an important principle when it comes to sorry, I'm having trouble here getting it to change. Uncle Ron, if you just use your arrows on your keyboard, that might help if you just go up and down. I can't see any arrows, John. So, uh, I, okay, I'm sort of ch changing slides is a problem at the moment. I think I'm able to work it out. Okay, so when we go to anything in the Bible, we need to take the whole counsel of God into effect. You know, Paul said to the Ephesians, I've not shunned to declare unto you that all the counsel of God, the whole revelation of God was something that Paul had given to him. There was no just saying only the nice things. And, and that's something we have to do when it comes to any Bible perspective, and particularly in relation to our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a very human failing to first form our own ideas and views and then to mine the scriptures just to look for verses that support our preconceived notions. And that's a very short-sighted failing that particularly happens in relation to how people perceive the Lord Jesus Christ. When you think about many Christians and their view of Christ, they have a very unbalanced view about the Lord Jesus Christ because they only look at him as revealed in the Gospels. If you ask the, the average person who says they were a Christian, they would say that they know Jesus as being a person of love and kindness, a person of gentleness, somebody who was always compassionate to the sick and to the sinners, somebody who was non-resistant to personal attacks. And they see him as a harmless, inclusive teacher perhaps with little children around his feet all the time, 
And they would say that Jesus is incredibly tolerant. But when you go to the Gospels, you find there's a quite a different Jesus that's there also. People don't always recognize his double violent cleansing of the temple where he drove out the money changers and those who sold animals inside God's house. We need to think of the constant rebuke of hypocritical religion and the harsh terms that Jesus used against those Jewish leaders, calling them the blind leaders of the blind, calling them whited sepulchres. And there was a lot of anger that Jesus expressed at Jewish heart-heartedness. And, and yet at the same time, he could say to sinners that they should sin no more. So there was a, a Jesus that's not always recognised when people come and look at the Gospels. We, of course, look at the whole of the Bible and our comprehension of Jesus is not limited to just the aspects that we see in the Gospels, nor particularly to those that appeal to the postmodern world. You know, we, we live in a world which has come to a very sad position when it comes to the way they look at anything, and particularly when it comes to looking at religion. This is a quote from a noted postmodernist called Kruger, and it just gives you some idea of the difference between the way the world is starting to think and the way that we as scripture readers should think. Postmodernity, in contrast to modernism or humanism, rejects any notion of objective truth and insists there's only the only absolute in the universe is that there are no absolutes. Tolerance is the supreme virtue and exclusivity the supreme vice. Truth is not grounded in reality or in any authoritative text, but simply constructed by the mind of the individual society. And that summarizes how the world has gone through the humanist phase to the postmodern phase. And, and what we're up against today is this concept that a lot of people have that there is no absolutes, that truth is a constantly moving target, that it's changing all the time, and that you can create your own truth. And to the modern world, the true believer is the greatest danger. And of course, we claim to be those true believers. So because we are called to the one saving truth, we must look at the whole of God's revelation about Jesus Christ. We must see the complete picture of the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who showed us God's holiness and God's truth, as well as was the expression of God's love and God's mercy. And so we're going to look this morning at the book of Revelation a little bit, just to, to pull from Revelation the great work that Christ came into the world to do and the way that we should think in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is now immortal and speaking to us from heaven. When we come to Christ, we go right back to Genesis. God always had a plan and a purpose that revolved around the Lord Jesus Christ. He was to be the seed of the woman, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, the obedient son on Mount Moriah, the savior of the world portrayed by Joseph. He was the serpent on the pole. He was the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the son of David, the Messiah. And we see Christ in all of those things, completing that work in the apocalypse. Whereas the immortal king of kings and future ruler of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, portrays himself as the end and the fulfillment of God's purpose. Obviously, in this mortal life, we have to try and follow the character and the virtues of our Lord Jesus Christ to hear his teachings and copy his morality. 
We must also comprehend the vital principles of his unique sacrifice, where a sinless man died and in so doing declared God's righteousness. We don't find it hard to identify with the Lord Jesus Christ in the struggles of mortality, in the struggles against temptation, and we are thankful that we have a high priest who is touched and sympathetic to our infirmities. We're very thankful that we have a God that gives us assurance that we can be forgiven of our shortcomings. But I want to move on from that a little bit to think about the Lord Jesus Christ after he was crucified and was raised and what he did in the earth from that point onwards. The Lord Jesus Christ always foresaw the need that there would be groups of believers that would be formed into ecclesias. In the Gospels, there are two mentions of future ecclesial structures, one in Matthew 18 and one in the declaration that Peter made upon which Christ said he would build his ecclesia. In the parables, there are many references to collective responsibility, how the servants of God would relate to each other. What we do know is when Christ was raised and had gone to heaven, he established ecclesias, using Peter and the other apostles to do so. We notice how he carefully instructed the apostles, delivering to Paul and to others detailed instructions about ecclesial life and how it should function. We know that he gave gifts that could be used to establish and guide ecclesias in that first century. How often did Paul say, I have received of the Lord certain instructions? So we need to hearken to the principles that Jesus gave to the apostles in order that converts might be made, that we might form and we might regulate the ecclesias that God has given us that we might exist in. And so we have all the spirit-guided instructions through Peter, John, Jude and other writers coming from heaven itself. And Jesus now sits enthroned in heaven, having all authority and tells us that he sends his angels to guide the ecclesias as well as our lives. But in the end, we must relate to the complete mind of Christ. Yes, we must relate to the Lord Jesus Christ as he lived upon the earth and showed us how to combat mortality. But we are related now to an immortal Jesus. And we must comprehend the total way that Jesus reveals himself, and particularly in the book of Revelation. Here we have the voice of the immortal Jesus speaking to us from heaven. Jesus now vested with full knowledge of the times and seasons that God has in his power. Now having full authority to counsel and to encourage and to rebuke the ecclesias in all ages. Just some of the titles of the Lord Jesus Christ give us an idea of the Christ that we now relate to. He that loved us and saved us from our sins. He that lives and was dead. He's the first begotten from the dead, which means that many others will follow. He walks in the midst of the ecclesias. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the worthy lamb that had been slain, the heavenly bridegroom, the lamb upon Mount Zion, the coming prince of the kings of the earth, the Lord of lords, the king of kings, the Alpha and the Omega, beginning and the end, the first and the last, the root and the offspring of David and the bright and the morning star. And these are the titles of the immortal Jesus that we also must relate to as much as we relate to the Jesus in the days of his mortality. He has all power now to bring the purpose of God with the earth to pass. And speaking as the future King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ writes to his faithful servants, 
We know, of course, the words of Revelation chapter 1. It says there that Jesus gave the apocalypse to John, that he might write that to a small group of the woman's seed, his servants in every age, not only outlining the future history of the world, but to encourage them to see the world from God's perspective. He wants them to be ready and watching. And so he gave them this message, which was sent particularly to his servants, and it was given in signs or code. It was signified by his angel to his servant, John. And we must ask the question, is the apocalypse important? Well, you think about what we have in the apocalypse. This is the last letter, the last opportunity of the, of the bridegroom to write to his bride in the time of his absence. Given one last chance to write a letter to someone you dearly love and hope to marry one day. You can only imagine that the prospective bride would read that letter and study every word intensely because here is the immortal bride, bridegroom giving them the last information that they need to survive unto the end. And Jesus, now immortal, now fully informed, wrote exactly what he knows we need to understand and are reflecting the values that we must adopt that we might become part of his bride. And we do notice when we come to the apocalypse that it was written to ecclesias. Revelation 2 verse 7, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the spirit says under the ecclesias. That is, of course, the, the point that comes in every one of those seven letters. When you come to the end of the book of Revelation, he said unto me, these are the sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. So again, we have the Lord addressing the ecclesias that he established and the ecclesias in which he walks. Very much we see the Lord giving us an indication of how he thinks about those ecclesias. He says to the ecclesias, I know thy works. He did it then, and he certainly knows today what's happening in our ecclesial world. And his concern is certainly no less than it was when he wrote these letters to those seven ecclesias at the end of the first century. So we need to take account of the things the Lord has said to us in the book of Revelation, and particularly to make sure that we think the same as the Lord thinks about the situation in which we find ourselves in the modern world. Now, the apocalypse is remarkable because it's the only history book that tells us about the future. It's things which must shortly come to pass, as it says in Revelation 1 verse 1. So these are events, all of which happened after the end of the first century. Again, in Revelation 4 verse 1, things which must be hereafter. So it's a remarkable book. It's written particularly for his servants in every age that they might know where they stand. A unique history book of future events. The seven letters we know have motivating promises in them. And as that unfolds, of course, we know where we sit in the pageant of history. There are visions given to encourage the saints right through the book of Revelation. No matter where you are in history, if you find yourself in those particular um, portions where we have the seals and the vials unfolding, then no matter where you are, there was very close to that situation a vision of the future glory of the saints. And the vision chapters are interspersed right through Revelation. 
especially those who were persecuted, were encouraged that their sufferings would be remembered and that they would ultimately find the reward of their faith. So it's a remarkable book, the book of Revelation, as it unfolds to us. Some of the keys about this book that, of course, we have long established, but just to reiterate for the sake of clarity, this is a book written for God's servants and God's friends. It's not written for the world in general. In fact, when you look at the commentaries that most religions make on Revelation, you get some idea of how much the truth is essential to understanding Revelation properly. So it's not written for the world in general. It's written to encourage and inspire the friends and servants of Christ. It's written in code, most of which are Bible-based, but some code which only the true servants can fully appreciate. It can't be properly understood without a knowledge of correct Bible truth or correct understanding of Old Testament Bible prophecy. And of course, as Brother Mark showed us, the book of Daniel is an essential basis to understanding Bible prophecy. And it concerns history after AD 96. So that's just some of the vital keys to the apocalypse that we need to have at the forefront of our minds as we come to it. We can't afford to say that the apocalypse is too complicated. Brother Thomas very beautifully said this in Phanerosis, the deity delights in stimulating the intellect of his creatures. And twice in the apocalypse, the Lord Jesus Christ encourages us to think about the symbology that he's given us. Here is wisdom, but him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it's a number of a man. His number is 603 score and six. And so we're encouraged to go and seek after the meaning of that number. And of course, we know that that gives us an indication of the development of the papacy. And likewise, the seven mountains uh, are the, the city of Rome is identified in Revelation chapter 17. But I want to just point out the fact that the Lord expects us to go and unwind these symbols. We don't always have an explanation like you get in Revelation 17. Sometimes he says, you go away and you show your wisdom to explore these things. So don't be deterred by the incredible amount of historical detail that the apocalypse contains. Just take away from that history the assurance that so much of it has been fulfilled precisely, showing us that what is yet to come will likewise be precisely fulfilled. Don't be confused by the complexity of the symbols. Go back and explore them through the scriptures and you will see that the Bible does explain itself about those things. So, let's move on to the seven letters to the Ecclesias. You know, John was told to write these things down and the, send them to the Ecclesias of that time. But we know, of course, that it meant Ecclesias in every age, the number seven being the complete Ecclesial world. This is a message to all generations of believers. In these seven letters, we have Jesus writing to people like ourselves who know what an ecclesial structure is and know the complications and sometimes the threats that come to our ecclesial life. And so we have very particularly important principles that come through these letters. And of course, when we come to these letters, we find this is not the Jesus that most Christians think about when they look at him only in the Gospels. In the letters that were written to the Ecclesias, we find a number of interesting factors that are repeated over and over again. We find there are things that Jesus hates, and hate is not a word that people normally associate with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Of course, he taught us that we don't personally hate anyone. But when Jesus comes to doctrine and practice, he says, there are things which I hate. Revelation 2, verse 5 to 7, this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And so the Lord says, I'm very glad to see you have the attitude of hating those deeds of the Nicolaitans. Of course, they were the superior-minded people who thought that they knew better than what had been written by the apostles. Verse 15, he says, there has them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. And they were told to repent and to make to make some action about that because there were doctrines being preached by the Nicolaitans, which Jesus detested. So Jesus actually emphasizes the need for the ecclesial world to take action when it comes to making sure that those false doctrines and those false deeds that follow from them are not allowed as part of their ecclesial life. It's not a personal hatred. It's an intense hatred of wrong belief and wrong practice because in the end, those deceitful doctrines will lead disciples away from the saving truth to eternal death. And we find in these seven letters that ecclesias are commended for taking attitudes and fighting the inroads of error. And other ecclesias are therefore warned about the fact that they were tolerating that error. Quite interesting when you look at these letters of how intense the feelings of the Lord are. Writing to Pergamos, I have a few things against thee, Revelation 2, verse 14 and 15, because thou hast them there that hold the doctrine of Balaam. And again, here was doctrine that was going to inevitably lead to corrupt practice. Um, as we already read in verse 15, thou hast them to hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And, they, and these ecclesias were warned about the threats that the Lord perceived from these doctrines. Come down, of course, we come to Revelation 2, verse 20. I have a few things against thee, said the Lord, because thou sufferest the woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit fornication. And those ecclesias were told that they needed to change their ways, to repent, or else their lampstands would be removed. So one thing you do notice from the letters is not only the commendation that they received, not only the promises they received, but the very distinct warnings the Lord gave that Ecclesia should uphold the purity of the doctrine. In fact, the Lord wanted to say that if they failed to act, that he would actually kill those who taught these things. And that, of course, again, is not something people associate with Christ. But there it is in Revelation, Jesus from heaven saying that he will take action if they fail to do so. So it's very sad, isn't it, that the concern and the attitude of Jesus about not allowing false doctrine to come into the ecclesial world is becoming increasingly unpopular in this postmodern age of tolerance that surrounds us everywhere. You know, we're told in Hebrews chapter 13 that ecclesial elders will have to give an account to the Lord Jesus Christ for the flock. And we need to be very much taking in the warnings of Christ that he gave to the ecclesial world in these letters about the need to carefully ensure that the pure doctrine of saving truth is preserved. When you go to Revelation, you can't miss the attitude of Christ towards false religion, and particularly towards the apostasy that developed in his name. We're going to see a bit later on some of the things that the Lord says about the end of that apostasy. If anyone finds themselves feeling uncomfortable about this aspect of Christ, be sure it's not the Lord Jesus Christ that needs to change. 
We need to align ourselves to the thinking of Christ on these matters. What I want to do now, having leaving just briefly the letters behind, is to trace the relationship issues that come to us through the apocalypse, the relationship between Christ and his bride, and to pick up some of the promises that are made to those who are his servants. The relationship to the bridegroom. You know, we're told in chapter 1, verse 3, that the servants of the Lord Jesus Christ are very keen to understand the things that he writes to them. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things that are written therein, for the time is at hand. And if that's something we must have gone away with today, seeing the current events, the time is at hand. We have to keep the words of this prophecy told in Revelation chapter 1 that we have a current status. He's made us kings and priests unto God and his fathers. And, of course, the promise of assurance is there that God wants to save us for his kingdom. John actually spoke of the ecclesia world sharing his tribulations and being in the kingdom and the patience of Jesus Christ. And the work that God is doing with us is the sealing of the servants of God. Revelation 7, we have a time when war was held back that the angels might finish the work of sealing the servants of God. So God is currently sealing us. And he's doing that by giving the words of the Lord Jesus Christ that we can follow, we can understand, and we can grow in and mature in these things and be ready to meet our Lord when he comes. So we have to have that spirit of wanting to understand these things. So that's what God is trying to achieve in us. Many of the servants of God suffered for their faith down through the ages. When you go through the book of Revelation, you find that there's many predictions of the sufferings of the saints that would come. In Revelation 6, verse 9 and 10, we have the souls under the altar, slain for the word of God, crying out for their blood to be avenged. Revelation 11, the holy city being trod underfoot 40 and two months. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, the pagan Roman Empire accused our brethren before God day and night. And of course, even after that particular Roman dragon was Catholicized, they made war with the remnant of her seed. Again, the, the woman's seed had to flee into the wilderness that they might be able to keep the commandments of God. So, the apocalypse shows us that the servants of God will always be on the receiving end of persecution. And because that's the case, and particularly the case in relation to God's prophets in the past, we see that there is a promise that God has for them. One thing I find remarkable about the apocalypse is the place of the prophets in God's mind. This is Revelation 22, verse 6 to 9. This is the angel speaking to John. These sayings are faithful and true, and the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servant the things which must shortly be done. You ever notice that interesting introduction and the way God is described to He's the Lord God of the holy prophets. Interesting, isn't it, that God associates himself with Abraham. I am the God of Abraham, but he's also the God of the holy prophets. In verse 9, he said, the angel said to John, See thou do it not, don't worship me, John, I'm just the angel, I'm your fellow servant and of thy brethren the prophets. <clears throat> so what we see there is that the angel identifies with the prophets. 
and of them which keep the sayings of this book. And you just get some idea of, of how God views those who speak in his name and who faithfully diminish not the things that he's revealed to them. You know, Jeremiah was told to go to the temple and to speak to the people about the coming judgments of God. And he was not allowed to diminish a word, not to say, well, look, I'm just going to say the nice things you want to hear. He had to say every word faithfully as God gave it to him. And of course, we know many of those prophets lost their lives. And that's why we have the promise of Revelation 14, verse 13. Right. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the spirit, they may rest from their labours and their works do follow them. And certainly the prophets of old have left their works for us to read and their works do follow them into immortality. But you see, it's not just the prophets of ancient Israel that the Bible talks about. We need to continue the witness of faithful prophets today. Again, John in Revelation 19 wants to worship the angel because he's overwhelmed by the majesty of what's been given to him. The angel says, See, thou do it not, I am my fellow servant of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So that angel that identified with the holy prophets of old now identifies with those who were preaching the gospel of Christ. And he says the testimony of Jesus, the continuation of the publication of God's purpose, now particularly that we understand the fullness of the Lord Jesus Christ and the relationship of Christ to the future of this world. It's the same spirit of the prophets that we must have today. It's the spirit of prophecy. And we are the successors of the prophets of old that God so much loved. And so we continue that work today in prophesying that coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and his future rulership of the world. We're also motivated by the resurrection. I want you to just notice this verse in Revelation 11, verse 18. The nations were angry. And haven't we seen the sea and the waves roaring in the last few months? My wrath is come and the time of the dead that they should be judged. Thou shouldest give reward to thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great. Again, notice the special category of the prophets. Yes, there are the saints, those that fear God's name, small and great. And we would, of course, put ourselves amongst the small in that number. But God has those prophets in a very, very particular place in his purpose because of the fact that they stood and witnessed for him against the people often and we made themselves incredibly unpopular in doing so. And many of them suffered terribly for it, as we're told in Hebrews chapter 11. So we're all motivated by the resurrection. But just notice that the prophets are especially remembered by God because of their faithful witness. Okay, well, I want to come now to look at some of the visions of immortality that the Lord gives us in this apocalypse. In Revelation chapter 14, he says, the Lamb stands upon Mount Zion with 144,000, that is 12 by 12 by thousands, that's the perfected hope of Israel, the Israel of God come to its final purpose, having his Father's name written in their foreheads. And, of course, that's the qualification of those who will make up the total redeemed Israel. They have in their minds the character and the thinking of God. It goes on to say in verse 4 of Revelation 14, they were not defiled with women. This is not talking specifically about literal things. They're not all going to be single girls. What it's saying is these are people who were not corrupted by the false church. 
They follow the Lamb wheresoever he goeth. They were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. So there's a qualification that we can be the first fruits. Obviously, God intends at the end of the thousand years that all those who survive will be immortal and will be part of the Father himself, that God may be all in all. But there is a, a type of first fruits that are, will be made immortal when Christ returns to the earth. But what qualifies us to be the first fruits? Yes, the Father's name written in our foreheads, so the thinking of God impressed upon our minds. But James also explains how God achieves the kind of first fruits. This is James 1, verse 17 to 18. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variableness, neither shadow of turning. God is consistent in his love and his generosity. But notice this verse 18, of his own will, begat he us with the word of truth. There's the mechanism, the word of truth, the truth of the gospel, it says in Galatians chapter 2. God begat us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So those who make up Revelation 14, being part of that redeemed people of Israel that are portrayed there upon Mount Zion, they are the first fruits of immortality that God will give. And they are today being begotten by the word of truth and developed by the word of truth. And notice how God describes it, not just by the word, it's the word of truth. And that's why the correct understanding of the gospel is important to us. The servants of Christ also do their very best to obey his commandments. Now, Jesus said, you are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. Revelation 22, verse 14, blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and enter in through the gates into the city. Those in Sardis, they had not defiled their garments. They will walk with him in white for they are worthy. So there is a necessity for us also to do our very best to try and follow the example and the commandments of our Lord Jesus Christ. When the Lord returns, there's going to be for us an incredible sense of relief. And especially if we've been battling against the evils of the age and the way that it impacts us and our children and maybe our grandchildren, it's going to be a great sense of relief that the battle is over. For those who gave their lives for the, for the truth's sake down through the centuries, for them, this day will be a great sense of justification and vindication. And John, having seen this white-robed multitude, was told this, These are they which came out of great tribulation, have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and to lead them unto living fountains of waters. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. You know, we're told in Revelation that there'll be two occasions when tears shall be wiped away. Revelation chapter 19, one at the end, sorry, Revelation 21, one at the end of time when God wipes away tears from all faces. But for the saints of God, there's just a time when the Lord returns 
when he gathers to himself the holy prophets and all of his servants, small and great, when he makes them immortal, and when he ends all their sufferings, all their tribulations, all their anxieties, and wipes away all tears from their eyes. For many of us, we're not sure how that could be achieved because of some of the things that people have to endure and some of the sufferings we've seen. But the promise is there, brethren and sisters, he will wipe away all tears from their eyes. I want to come now to the reading we had in Revelation chapter 19 because we often speak about the joy of being part of the marriage and of the supper of the Lamb. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honour to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And as you well know, Brother Thomas pointed out, the Greek there is actually in the past tense, his wife had made herself ready. So those who go into the wedding are those who were ready. To her was granted she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for fine linen is the righteousness of saints or the righteous actions of saints. So their actions have been translated into immortal lives. Right, blessed are they which are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said unto me, these are the true sayings of God. So we have a situation, brethren and sisters, to which we hope to be part of. We want to be there with the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be part of that bride that is a great multitude, many voices, many people, voice of great waters. We want to be there. But have you ever thought that the bride has attitudes that align to the book of Revelation. Just cast your eye back to the early part of Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 17 and 18 takes us through the ultimate destruction of the papal system and all those kings of the earth that support it. It takes us through the complete eradication of all of everything Catholic and all the influence it's had through Europe especially. And it moves into Revelation chapter 19, the rejoicing of a voice of much people in heaven or in power. And they are saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honour and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. They will be in total sympathy with the judgments described in Revelation 17 and 18. The judging of the great whore system, the system that has corrupted the name of God and the name of Christ down through the centuries. It's corrupted the earth with her fornication. And which, of course, has persecuted the servants of God. And we know about the terrible sufferings of our brethren down through the ages who were murdered by the Inquisition, harassed and, and, and massacred in many, many places because of their faith. They will sing before the marriage ceremony. They will sing in their complete agreement with the destruction of this system. We need to think about that, brethren and sisters. We must be in sympathy with this particular voice because, God willing, we will be singing these words along with our brethren, especially our brethren who suffered at the hand of the whore system. And here is the song of the bride. Much people, many voices singing together about the destruction of Rome. Revelation 17, verse 14, it talks about those that are with him. When the Lord Jesus Christ goes out to conquer as Lord of Lords and King of Kings, there are people with him, the called, the chosen, 
and the faithful. You know, God has done the calling. God has chosen us, given us the opportunity to be part of the future with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's up to us to be faithful. So the called and the chosen and the faithful, they are with him. In Revelation 19, verse 19, when they go out to conquer the rest of the world, they are his army. And we have to be in sympathy with the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's going to do in this world. Can we comfortably use the same terms about Catholicism that Jesus did when he called it a great harlot system, a whore system, the abomination of the earth, great Babylon, the names of blasphemy? Can we honestly say that we can say those words as the Lord would say them? Because that's the bridegroom that we hope to marry. That's how he sees the world. We've got to be with him and his hatred of this abominable whore system because we'll be his army and we'll be with him in that day. Well, some of our brethren will have no problem with this at all, particularly those who suffered under the hands of the Inquisition. Now, Revelation 20, verse 4 to 6, talks about the first resurrection. I saw thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given unto them. I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, nor his, nor his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in this first resurrection. You know, some of our brethren will have no problem seeing the song of Revelation 19, verse 1 to 2, because they will see what a terrible thing this system has been this blight upon the earth of this false religion that has amused men for so long and even today holds tremendous influence in the world. You think about it. Today, the papacy has no army to speak of. Today, the papacy is restricted to about one square mile. And yet, when they crown a new pope, all the kings of the earth turn up to give homage to the beast. When the pope speaks, he's quoted worldwide the influence is still there brethren and sisters and we have to share with the time and this system will be removed you know revelation has many rejoicings over the demise of false religion revelation 18 verse 20 rejoice over her thou heaven and you holy apostles and prophets for god hath avenged you on her of course rome in the ancient days murdered some of the apostles and down since through history since that time, they have shown their hand in trying to remove those who were speaking the words of God. Revelation 15, verse 2 and 3, we have the same description. Sea of glass having been mingled with fire. Those that had gotten victory over the beast and over his image and over the mark and over the number of his name stand upon that peaceful sea of glass, rejoicing. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, a song of victory. God has destroyed those that tried to resist his truth. So we see that there's going to be a great change in the world. And we must share the values that the Lord Jesus Christ outlines to his ecclesias in the apocalypse, in all of these prophecies about the future work that we're going to be part of as his army and his bride. Well, he makes many promises to us as overcomers. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. 
Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. He that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, even as the vessels of a potter shall be broken to shivers, even as I have received of my father. It's not arrogant for us to think, brethren and sisters, that God has been so generous to take us poor mortals out in all our weaknesses and wants to make us the future army of the Lord Jesus Christ, future administrators of the kingdom. We rejoice in the fact that God is able to do that work in us despite our unworthiness. And so he says to Philadelphia, him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I'll write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. And there are a couple of references in these letters to the Ecclesiastes to the new name that God will give to each one of us. And perhaps it will be a name that reflects the work that God has for us or maybe the special way that God views each of us and the relationship that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. But the time is coming when these promises will be brought to fruition. Revelation 22, to him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And we wait for that time, don't we, brethren and sisters, when we shall see the truth of God flowing out as that river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God on the Lamb, supported by the forest of life on either sides of the river as the word goes forth in the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. And brethren and sisters, we long for that time, don't we, then we might have those promises fulfilled in us. When God will finish the work that he's begun in each one of us, and we shall be sharing with the Lord Jesus Christ that throne that will last through a thousand years. Brethren and sisters, the times are upon us. What is our relationship to our Lord Jesus Christ today? How do we see our future bridegroom? Well, the Lord said to us, that which thou hast, hold fast till I come. We need to hold fast, brethren and sisters, to the one saving truth, the truth of the gospel that makes us the first fruits. We need to hang on to that and preserve it, and if need be, to fight for it until the Lord comes. That's what he encouraged the Ecclesiastes to do in Revelation 2 and 3. We need to make sure we're doing his commandments, that we share his values when it comes to morals, share his values when it comes to obedience to things that God has said he accepts and will not accept. We do his commandments as best we can. We must love righteousness and hate evil as the Lord did. You know, the Lord was capable of very strong emotions in both directions. He'd love righteousness. Of necessity, if we love righteousness, we will hate evil. We mustn't be cowed into silence about the evil that's around us just because the postmodern world doesn't like to hear our words. Maybe as we see events unfolding, brethren and sisters, it's time to give some effort to restoring the lost, to appealing to those brethren and sisters and young people who've moved away from the truth of the gospel, who perhaps are just wandering in this world. As we see these things unfolding, maybe this is the time to reach out and to write and to ask them to come back and to ask them to join us once again before it's too late. Until the end comes, we must share his sufferings with patience. We don't know 
whether we might be here, even into the time of trouble. When you read Daniel chapter 12, it says there shall be a time of trouble such as never was. At the same time, the resurrection will take place. We may have more sufferings to endure yet, and we endure them with patience, knowing the end purpose that God has for us. We have to be prepared to be hated by the world as the prophets often were, and especially as the Lord Jesus Christ was. As the world becomes more evil and more sick in the way that it thinks, we're going to be more unpopular in the opinions that we hold because the mind of God is far away from the mind of the flesh. And we must witness against false religion and against sin in all its forms. We have to continue the spirit of prophecy that the prophet showed us in days of old. And we must be willing to lay down our lives for the brethren. This pandemic has given us many challenges, many opportunities also to think about how we might reach out to our brethren and sisters and, and include them, even though they were not meeting together as much as we used to. The time has come for us to think about the needs of everybody in these difficult times that are around us. And of course, we end with the warning the Lord Jesus Christ gave. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and be ashamed. Brethren and sisters, we need to carefully watch ourselves as much as we watch the world and current events around us. He which testifieth these things saith, surely I come quickly. Brethren and sisters, let's make sure that we, from the apocalypse, pick up the way the immortal, risen, glorified Lord Jesus Christ would have us to think. He would have us to participate in that future with him when he comes to rid the world of the evil that currently is there and to replace it with the glorious kingdom of God. Surely I come quickly or suddenly. And so we say with John, even so, come Lord Jesus.